0: Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. It says, The sons of Noah, who went forth from the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the peoples of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. You can have a seat. When I was a a kid... When I was really young, we went to church occasionally. And then my family moved to a different part of town. We searched for a a different church to go to occasionally, I guess. And one Sunday, sometime after that, I went, I stayed at a friend's house on a Saturday night. And the next morning we went to church. I went to church with him. And the church we went to, it was so different in some way, from the churches that I had been to. And I went home and I told my parents, I was whatever, 10, 11 years old. And I went home and I told my parents, hey, we should try this church that I went to this morning. And so we did. And at that church, I heard the gospel and I saw Christ affecting people's lives in a way I'd not seen it before. And Christ did a work in my life and I was saved, and I was baptized there. And the pastor who was the pastor there who I went to service with, to and, and, and heard him preach, he baptized me and was involved in Sunday school. I got involved in youth ministry and those kind of things. And early in my teenage years, it turned out that the pastor of the church was found to be in an adulterous relationship with his administrative assistant. And it was an incredibly painful blow for a young teenager who was a fresh Christian, didn't understand everything, to wrestle with the reality that the, the guy who You listen to tell you how to follow Christ, who had baptized you, who had shared the gospel with you, was most likely in an adulterous relationship while doing all those things. Recently, there were reports that well-known Christian author and apologist Ravi Zacharias in... The years before his death, for some time, had been in some situations, had been in a pattern of grievous sexual misconduct. Now, we could go from example to example to example. Honestly, this is a sermon where uh, I sometimes you write a sermon and you think, well, gosh, what illustration am I going to use? Unfortunately, for this sermon, I had to pick and choose which of the plethora of illustrations I had. Most of us have had someone who we would consider a spiritual giant, someone we looked up to, who was spiritually and personally beneficial to us, whose character we assumed was unimpeachable, and then who committed a sin that absolutely shocked us, that we thought was unthinkable for them, right? I don't think any of us who have been in the church very long can't think of an example, right? I've been around church life for long enough. I've seen a lot of sinful behavior that I wish didn't exist in the church, and I'm only looking at myself at that point. I haven't even started looking at anyone else. Any of us are capable of any sin, any Christian, even Christian leaders. On the one hand, we shouldn't be surprised. On the other hand, we shouldn't lower our expectations. Spiritual giants committing terrible sins isn't uncommon biblically either. It's actually a pretty consistent theme throughout Scripture. And our passage this morning is no different. Righteous Noah grows a vineyard, makes some wine, gets drunk, and passes out naked in his tent. But this isn't a passage primarily about the failings of spiritual leaders. Not to take anything away from the gravity or the damage of those sins. It's certainly worth discussing. It's certainly worthy of sermons. It's certainly worthy of conversation and study. And there are a lot of examples. Abraham and his lies. David and his adultery and murder, Solomon's idolatry, Peter's denial, Samson's basically everything. I mean, you could just go on and on and on and and go through biblical examples. However, what's interesting in our passage this morning is it doesn't seem to center on Noah's misconduct. Rather, the the center of the passage, the thrust of the passage, if you will, the emphasis is on his son's response to it. How do his sons respond when he sins? See, so stuck between the post-flood command that we talked about last week to populate the world and this genealogy of chapter 10 that tells us about all the nations that, that will fill the known world from these three sons... This middle passage, this passage we have today, it illustrates the response of the sons that reveals their character. And their character, the character of these three sons, influences or predicts the future of their descendants. I want you to see how all of this connects together. We'll talk more about their descendants next week. If you haven't already Someone you trust and look up to in the church is going to hurt you, betray you, disappoint you with their sin. It may be a pastor, it may be a small group leader, it may be a family member like a a parent or a spouse. And in these kinds of moments, when you've been cut with the knife of someone else's sin, it's not uncommon for someone to tell you or someone to say to you, this is really hard. It's understandable if you fill in the blank or it's okay that you fill in the blank. And usually what's in the blank is some response, some behavior in in response to that sin that is in itself sinful. And I want you to know that's not okay. However well-intentioned these kinds of statements may be in their desire to sympathize with your pain, they are profoundly false and damaging. They are, in the end, unloving to you and to the community that you live in. The way we respond to sin, friends, has the potential to cut the cycle of sin and pain short or to keep it spinning and keep it spreading. The way that you respond to sin has the potential to cut the cycle of sin and pain and damage short or to keep it It's spinning and to speed it up and keep flinging it out into other people and new churches and new communities and new lives. You need to understand that your response to sin has repercussions. We become so self-interested that we fail to see how our responses will influence our spiritual children. Our biological children, our community for generations to come. Our sin, our response to sin has repercussions. Let me pray. Lord, you are an incredibly holy God, and you call us to be holy as you're holy. Nothing is unseen by you, nothing will be ignored. By you, your word says that every careless word that we utter will be accounted for. You call us to be holy like you're holy, and yet oftentimes our response to sin does not reflect your response to sin. Lord, allow us to see what's in our own eye first. Give us humble and contrite hearts in the face of someone else's sin. Help us to understand your grace for us, so that we might extend that grace to others. May it lead us to right responses, even in really difficult circumstances. Lord, may it help us to clearly declare your truth and to remain steadfast in your love so that a dying world may see you and know you. I pray all this in your name. Amen. So, how did Noah's sons respond? to Noah's sin. Like I said, Noah's passed out. He's not in a position that's very becoming of, you know, uh, the progenitor of the entire human race, right? Sort of a big position to hold. So how did Noah's res- sons respond well first ham is the one that finds him there in the tent and it says that he looked on his father's nakedness and then he his response was to go and tell his brothers his brothers react differently when they hear the situation they 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 take a blanket it says they put it on hit their shoulders they walk backwards not seeing not looking and they cover their father's nakedness. In summary, Ham sees and spreads sin and shame while his brothers carefully put a stop to the sin. Now when Noah wakes and he learns what's happened, he proceeds to bless and curse the descendants of his sons based on their actions. And he curses Ham, particularly Ham's youngest son Canaan and then he blesses Shem and Japheth and from this we understand that whatever Ham did was terrible and whatever his brothers did was to be applauded. Ham's response should not be our response. Shem and Japheth's response should be our response. And so, what did Ham do that was so bad? Some scholars have attempted to interpret Ham's actions to be some sort of like sexual misconduct, perhaps with his, with his father, perhaps with his father's wife. And this, at best, stretches the meaning of the words there in Hebrew. And also, Ham's actions seem to be contrasted with the actions of his brother. And so, if that's what Ham did, then then it kind of makes. Shim and Japheth's response in contrast not, not really makes sense. I mean, what would that even be? No, no, I, I, think, I think while it's not the biggest point here, I think there is an implication, however, for our own sexual conduct. And I think it's especially relevant in the world we live in today, particularly in regards to Pornography. You see, we aren't sure what brought him to his father's tent, right? We don't know if he knew his brother or he knew his dad was drinking and he wondered what happened to him. We don't know if he just happened to stumble into his tent and see him there. We don't know. Whether you seek out sexually alluring content or whether you stumble on it, Do the question here is this, do you stay and look? Do you spread the sin or do you cover your eyes and stop the spread? I want you to understand that tech companies, right? Tech companies gather your information from your phone, your computer, every click, every view, every watch, so that they can then push content to you according to what you are entertained by so that they can continue to sell ads and they can continue to make money. And so every click that you click, every look that you look, every watch that you have, it's like saying, here, come into my home. Go ahead, get drunk and pass out and lay down naked. That's what it's like every time you watch that video, every time you click on that website. That's sexually alluring. It's like inviting it into your home, inviting it into your mind, inviting it into your heart. And we're shocked, we're shocked when our sons and our daughters stumble on it while doing their homework like statistically most nine to 11 year olds do. When we've been inviting it into our home time and time again. You see, our response to sin has repercussions. So I'll come back from that aside. All that said, I believe Ham's major violation is not one of sexual misconduct so much as it is dishonoring his father. He shamed him. And this may seem odd to us today because we've lost the idea of honoring another human being, not because they're honorable in themselves, but because they're made in God's image. We've lost this idea that a person deserves honor solely based on the fact that they're, they have God's image in them, not due to anything that they've done or haven't done themselves. We've lost the idea that an authority ought to be honored solely because God has set up that authority and God is our ultimate authority. Do you understand that when you dishonor any authority, what you are doing is dishonoring God, the ultimate authority, period. doesn't matter how that authority acts. God has put them there. And so God placed honoring your father and your mother first among the human-to-human commands in the Ten Commandments, right? In the Ten Commandments, we read those, all the law boiled down into ten things, and the first few are about how we interact with God, and the last are about how we interact with other people. And right in the middle, the first one about our horizontal relationships is honor your father and your mother that should tell us something about how important it is to God. In his scripture, how important it is, how important it is to his heart. And Ham, not honoring Noah, and how he responded to his nakedness and his sin. Not honoring him, but spreading the news of it, which would unnecessarily spread his father's shame. Which would lead others to potentially see him naked and sin themselves. You see, Ham's response indicates a personal character that is immoral. And as we read the Bible and as we follow Ham's descendants down the line, what we find out is that that immorality continues and it grows and it leads to complete moral abandonment in his descendants. It leads to the Canaanites, right? Interesting here, that Noah doesn't curse Ham, he curts, curses Canaan. And what we find out later in the story is that the Canaanites are completely morally empty. But Shem and Japheth respond differently in comparison to the brevity of this the rest of this story. There's actually quite a bit of description to what they do in this situation. Getting the blanket prepared, coordinating together, walking in backwards so they can't see him naked, so that they don't add to his shame their or their, his sin their own sin, so they don't add shame that doesn't need to be added, so they don't allow the sin to continue. They're covering him, isn't ignoring the sin, it isn't hiding the sin even. Their response is inconvenient. Their response is risky for them. Their response is messy, right? It's an admission that something sinful is happening right now. Something dishonoring is happening right now, and I don't want my dad to be dishonored, and I don't want his sh- sin to shame, shame to spread, and I don't want his sin to continue. And so I am going to go and minimize the continuation of it and stop the shame. Of the sinner. So, how should we respond to sin? You see, grace, grace should rule our response to sin. Grace, friends, is the blanket that we put on our shoulders and we put over the nakedness of our sin or of someone else's sin. But oftentimes, friends, Bible words are used in ways that sound pleasant, but but are quite unbiblical. And so I want to give you some ideas about what grace does not do. Grace does not ignore sin. I want you to understand that grace is not ignoring that sin has happened. When there are times when we may admit that sin has happened, but we may be passive towards it. We may ignore it even when we're in the position to act. Even when we are in a position to confront someone in their sin, either physically, geographically what, or relationally, whatever that is, we can, we can respond to it, we can confront it. And yet we become passive. Too often we see sin in someone's life and we turn a blind eye because it's uncomfortable, because it's inconvenient. We aren't sure how to handle it. It might get messy. Oh, that could take a lot of time. Shim and Japheth, what they do is not keeping sin in the dark. It's not sweeping their father's indiscretions under the rug. It's taking the exposed sin and extending grace over it. Deciding to do nothing, I want you to understand that deciding to do nothing is a decision to do something. If you choose to do nothing because you don't know how to handle it, all you've done is guarantee that it will be handled incorrectly. Do you get that? Like, you might screw it up. I get it. I'm in situations all the time, I have no idea what to do. That's like basically my life for like three years straight. Church planting in a nutshell. Doing things you have no idea what to do. You know? But doing nothing guarantees It's done incorrectly. Another way we ignore sin is by redefining it. Some might say that the only reason that sin produces shame is because we call it sin in the first place. If you just don't call it sin, right, then the shame goes away, doesn't it? Everyone can just kind of do what they want. It's, It's Noah's wine. It's Noah's tent. Who cares if he wants to get drunk and lay around naked? I mean, that's his business. It's his life. Stay out of it. He stays out of I stay out of his business. He stays out of my business. It's all good. Except it doesn't work that way, does it? Because you can redefine sin however you want. It's still shameful. Because that's God's design. Because it's not in alignment with God's character. The problem is that even if you pretend sin isn't sin, and even if people cease to be ashamed for their sin, the consequences of those sins don't go away. We may not think, for instance, that dishonoring our father is that big of a deal, but but we don't bend the definition of sin to our own sense of morality. We must adapt our sense of morality to the Bible's definition of sin so grace does not ignore sin. That is not grace. It's unloving. And grace does not add more sin either. One person's sin doesn't justify another's. Friends, listen, if there's one thing you get this morning, I, I hope it's this. One person's sin does not justify another person's. I know we want to think that's true when we've been sinned against. But it doesn't. Ham added to his father's sin with his own, and it only brought more potential for sin. When we respond to someone else's sin with our own sin, it merely reveals that our hearts are more bent towards self-interest than they are bent towards God. It only reveals that we really just care about getting what we want. It doesn't really matter how we get it. We'd rather have revenge than righteousness. We'd rather... We'd rather... uh, It reveals how little we trust in God in the first place. If we can't find... You can't find true satisfaction outside of sanctification. And if you respond to sin... With sin, it will not satisfy in the end. Married couples, you you you've been here, right? You you have a hard day at work. You come home, your spouse says something to you. On the average day, it would, it would just be whatever. It's be water off a duck's back. No, no big deal. But today, because you're frustrated, you respond back and in in. in You respond back in a a snappy way. Oh, that's how it's going to be. All right. And so then your spouse responds back in their own snappy way. And then you respond back in your snappy way. And then you're not talking to each other. And when you do, you're not saying the nicest things to each other until it gets to a point, it's like 10 o'clock at night, and you're like, I don't even understand why we got mad at each other in the first place. What What was even the thing that started this? All I know is I'm super pissed right now. (laughs) Meanwhile, our kids, they're just like, what the heck is going on, right? They're they're over here taking notes. Okay, so if someone acts this way towards me, my response should be, right? Our sin has repercussions. Our response to sin has repercussions. There are people watching. And isn't it funny isn't it funny when our, when our kids confront us? Isn't it funny when our kids confront us in the way that we ought to have confronted one another, but we failed to do so? When our kids come to us because of the things that we've done with genuine concern for us, and what does that produce in your heart? Humility. Humility. Produces contriteness. Produces sorrow for your actions. Produces a desire to repent. Our response to sin has repercussions, good or bad. Grace, grace doesn't ignore sin. Grace does not add more sin. Grace also does not add more shame. You see, too often, Our response to sin isn't meant to help people get out of the sin they're in. It isn't meant to help them see Christ and what Christ has done for them. Rather, it's meant to condemn or shame the person. Rather, the heart is to shame the sinner because we are hurt or we're frustrated. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sin. And sin, friends, it brings shame. It does. It will always bring shame. It it just will. That's what sin does. Every place in the Bible, when someone comes into God's presence, into the presence of a holy God, their immediate reaction is they are ashamed of who they are and their sin because God is so much more holy than we are. That's a natural thing. People, People in this church will sin. I sin. And there is shame because of that. But the question is, when that happens, how will we respond? Will we add to that shame? Or will we seek to bring that person out of the shame of their sin, out of their sin, so that that shame doesn't continue and get them on the right track? Or will we, in our frustration, Run their face through that shame over and over and over again. See, the world either ignores the sin or cancels the sinner. That's what it does, uh, and it's often based on on the world's ever changing definition of morality. Is it not? One moment the sin is ignored because no one cares, uh, and, and a decade later, now that sin is 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 reason to cancel that person and and never allow them to be talked about or even pretend that they don't even exist, right? Eventually, that kind of mindset, eventually that kind of way of operating cannibalizes itself, and we see that in the world all the time. The Bible says something different. Unfortunately, the church has not given the world a consistent example of grace even in how we've dealt with one another when we sin. Francis Schaeffer, he puts it in terms of holiness and love. He says this, the Christian really has a double task. He has to practice both God's holiness and God's love. Not his holiness without his love. This is only harshness not his love without his holiness, that's only compromise. Anything that an individual Christian or Christian group does that fails to show the simultaneous balance of the holiness of God and the love of God presents to a watching world, not a de- demonstration of the God who exists, but a character of the God who exists. Friends, our call is to both truth and love, both holiness and the love of God. That is grace. It can't be grace without both. I'm gonna tell you a little bit, of a story about how this looks in real life. Sometime back, it's been a while. We had a meeting and maybe a dozen or so people came over to my house and we were meeting about, I don't even know what, And I was talking and whatever. It doesn't really matter what the meeting was about. What mattered is in the course of the conversation, there were some ways that I responded, some things that I said that were uh, harsh, that were not sensitive to people in in the group. It came across at best as irritable and at worst as just plain mean-spirited, just being a jerk. And the meeting ended and everyone left. But a few minutes later, a, a dear brother in Christ called me on the phone and said, "Hey, hey, can I come back over here in a little bit?" Okay, sure. That's fine. He comes back over. And in a loving tone and with careful but clear words, he puts the blanket on his shoulder and he backs up and he throws it on top of me. He tells me that the way I came across wasn't okay, that my attitude and actions were off. By coming over and confronting me, he didn't allow sin to continue. But by waiting and coming back when no one else was there, by using a loving tone, by being clear, but gracious in the way that he spoke, didn't bring unnecessary shame on me. Thankfully, my response was to go back to the people involved and admit I was wrong and ask for forgiveness for how I said it and what I said. But that's what happens when we extend grace rather than adding sin and adding shame. You might think, "Oh, you just said something that was maybe a bit mean." People people at my work do that all the time, you know, it's whatever. It's no big deal. Maybe, but maybe not sin snowballs, right? In recent years, multiple pastors have blown up churches due to domineering and even abusive leadership. Who's to say if that moment I'm not confronted, if the next moment it's another thing and it's another thing and it's another thing and it's another thing. And it's another thing. Right. Too many times Christians stand by while their brothers and sisters in Christ continue in sin and they don't say anything because it's uncomfortable or they say, oh, well, it's, it's not that big of a deal. And then when the sin gets too big, then it's like, oh man, we gotta hide this because, because the da- it will do too much damage to God's church and God's mission, right? Friends, the sin... Is the damage. The damage isn't people knowing about it, the damage is already done. God's not calling you to be awesome, He's calling you to be holy accountability, confession, repentance. These things don't take away from God's glory. They add to God's glory. They reveal the greatest response to sin in the history of the world. Jesus doesn't ignore or redefine sin, but he also doesn't respond with sin, nor does he pour on unnecessary shame. Instead, Jesus, calling sin exactly what it is, comes into the sinful tent of this world, but lives... A Completely sinless life. He's the one person who rightly should have no shame, and yet they strip him bare naked and they hang him on the cross. The Bible says that he scorns the shame of the cross because of the joy of what it would bring the covering of our sin with his grace. I know exactly why am I yelling. It just happens. (laughs) I get excited. It was not ignoring sin that brought us forgiveness, friends. It was not ignoring sin that brought us forgiveness. It was not redefining sin that brought us forgiveness. It's not responding to sin with sin that brought us forgiveness. It was Jesus facing it. It was Jesus taking it on himself and carrying our shame on our behalf to the cross. Jesus' response to sin has the greatest repercussions, friends. But how will you respond to your own sin? Will you ignore it? Will you redefine it? Will you continue in it? Will you add to it? Will you confess it and repent of it? Allowing others or even ourselves to really see our sin for what it is, it's scary and embarrassing, and I get that. In your head, it seems justifiable, but when you put it into words, you start to realize just how bad your sin actually is. There's one thing, there's one last thing I want you to see in the text before we're done. If you turn to verse 26, Shim. Shim wasn't blessed because of how great and holy and perfect he was. In verse 26, it doesn't say, it doesn't say, Blessed be Shim. He's so great. He responded right. No, what does this say? It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shim. Shim's descendants are blessed, not because they're so awesome, but, but because of the relationship that they have with God. Their blessing first is God himself. And secondarily, any temporal blessings that flow out of that relationship. Romans 8 says it like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled In us. Friends, if your faith is in Christ, then you are in Christ. You have a saving relationship with Him. You are adopted into His family. You are blessed on account of Him. Our blessing is not a good name, our blessing is not fame or or comfort or pleasure or whatever. Indeed, He Himself is our blessing. And while our sin may be shameful temporarily, that blessing does not go away. We are not condemned eternally because we are forgiven in Christ and so we can confront our sin. And we can confess and we can repent. And we can extend the blanket of grace on others. Reality is some shame will always be wherever sin is whether we admit it or not. As long as sin continues and stays in the dark, the shame will remain. When we confess it and we turn from it, you may feel embarrassed in a moment, for a moment, but for the Christian, that's the sensation of sin leaving our lives and our hearts. Friends, we are actually stopping sin in our own life when we confess it and probably in the lives of others. The trash smells a little bit more when you take it out. But afterwards, the house starts smelling a lot less, right? My pastor, to my knowledge, never repented. He never sought forgiveness. He justified his behavior and he ran off. That sin. Well, the sin of adultery was hard to face, but but his lack of repentance did far more damage than his adultery ever did. 20 years later, that lack of repentance is what continues to bother that church. Maybe if Ravi had confessed his sin and repented publicly, I have no doubt that it would have been embarrassing for him. I have no doubt that it would have ended ministry opportunities that, that he had. But who's to say that his example may not have done more to help encourage Christians to confess their hidden sins, and to realize that we ought not put any Christian leader on a pedestal that is only meant for Christ. It may have helped people see that the glory wasn't in Ravi's intelligence, but in the power of the gospel of Christ. What could that have meant for a dying world? I want to tell you one one last story from my own life. When I was, when Amanda and I were were first married, the first year of our marriage, um, Amanda caught me looking at pornography. And I came home one day to our little basement apartment. And I can remember, I mean, I can remember the moment it's painted in my brain like it was yesterday. And I was walking through our little kitchen that was under the stairs. I was about to go in the living room and she comes around the corner and she confronts me. She wasn't mean-spirited, but she was very, very serious. And I could see the pain in her eyes at the realization of what I had done. When you confront someone with care, the gravity of the sin, but but with uh, a real love for that person, it tends to produce the response that it's supposed to produce when the Holy Spirit's at work in that person's life. And in that moment, I knew. Hmm, I don't know. In the, I don't know if in the moment I knew. But but quickly I realized that her catching me and confronting me was the grace of God in my life, and it changed. It changed my behavior. It changed me. I confessed. I asked forgiveness. I I repented. I turned from it. And I'm not perfect, right? I I struggle with lust. but it was a massive massive change. And to my wife's credit, while there were things that we had to work through and there was difficulties that consequences that come along with sin, she never she never used that against me. She never she never brought it up again when I said I was when I asked for forgiveness, that was the end of the thing. That was it. And 14 years later, I've never once, never once has she brought it up and used it against me, never once. And when you experience grace like that, when you experience the grace of God by the hands and feet of a Christ follower extended to you, when you know your sin and how wretched it was, and you know you don't deserve it, and yet you're receiving it, it changes you. And as painful as that had to have been for my wife, and I know it was, I could see it in her eyes. The fact that because of the grace of God on her life, she was able to extend that grace to me in that moment. I'd never experienced God's grace more and have never experienced God's grace more since than in that moment in my life. That's the opportunity we have, friends, When we respond to sin, our sin, our response to sin has repercussions. They could be bad. They could be good. Will you extend grace to others? Let's pray.